You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. Hey, if you would join me in Genesis chapter 3. Now that's where we're going to be at this morning. The passage of scripture we're going to be working through as we make our way through this second message in our series entitled Warpath. And the reason it's called Warpath uh, is because when Christ calls us to follow Him, uh, He doesn't trick us, tell us it's going to be this Sunday afternoon stroll through the park, but He makes it clear from the very beginning that this will be a fight, it will be a battle. Uh, and we are on the warpath. And last week we talked about how uh, He was very upfront about that. And we're going to see today that Scripture makes it very clear who our enemy is. Because I don't know about you, there have been many times that it feels like just one thing happens after another. You know, like if one bad thing happens, it's going to be like seven bad things are going to happen. It's like a domino starts, you know, and just... And I find myself saying, like, what is working against me? Am I, am I, is it a hex? Am I cursed? You know? And the truth is that there is something that is working against us. And the difficulty is that we can't see it. Our... American military is the most powerful military in the world. We have weapon systems that far, far, are far superior to the other superpowers in the world. But the threat to America is not the other superpowers and their military strength, because we have, we have won the arms race. The threat to America is the enemy that we cannot see. The threat to America is the terrorist who slips into our country, boards a passenger jet, takes over that jet, and flies it into a building. The enemy that our troops fight against in the Middle East is not someone who wears a t-shirt that says Team ISIS. He looks like the other farmers that are out in that mountainous region or the civilians that are in the urban center that they fight. And it's extremely difficult for us to fight, even though we have far superior weapons because we can't identify the enemy. And you can't hardly fight an enemy that you can't identify. And for us, we're unable to see the enemy because like the passage of Scripture that we read earlier that Don led us in reading, it tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's the passage we read. But I want to read kind of like a paraphrase of that. Hopefully it will help it like come home for you. We wrestle against persons without bodies. The rulers of the unseen world. Those mighty satanic beings and great evil princes of darkness who rule this world. And against huge numbers of wicked spirits in the spirit world. That's who we're fighting against. That's the enemy. But because we can't see that enemy, we typically focus on people, places, organizations that aren't the enemy, but are coming against us, and we feel like that must be the enemy because we can see it. And what happens is we often, we often turn our ire, our anger, our frustration against people because they are flesh and blood and we can see them, we can argue with them, we can debate with them, but they're not the enemy. And Satan would love for us to turn our weapons on one another, to turn our weapons on other people in our community, and to pour out our frustration on another person who bears the image of God. He would love for us to turn against one another. And so, though it feels like the enemy is the other political party, 
though it feels like the enemy is your neighbor who's just so difficult, though it feels like the enemy is your boss who won't let you catch a break, that's not the enemy. The enemy is the spiritual dark forces in this world. But we tend to focus on what we can see. And so we stay focused on the enemy or the representation of the enemy or the weapon of the enemy that we can see. I saw a really good illustration of this recently. In World War II, uh, when our bombers would return from running bombing runs over Germany, the ground crews in the Air Force would chart on a chart like this one where the plane had bullet holes or had taken shrapnel. And over time, they compiled all of these charts from all of the planes that were turning from bombing runs, and they came up with this image of this is where most commonly there were bullet holes. And their plan is, we need to reinforce these areas on our planes because that's where we're taking all of the damage. That's where all of the damage is. And so they're making plans to reinforce those areas of the plane, but someone intuitively, perceptively pointed out a flaw in their thinking. He said, what you have on your chart are the bullet holes on the planes that came home. What you don't have on your chart are the bullet holes in the planes that crashed in Germany, that blew up in the air. You can only see the bullet holes on the planes that made it. This isn't where you need to reinforce. You need to reinforce in the areas where there are no bullet holes. Because those planes that got hit in those areas didn't make it home. But that's harder because we can't see that. And what we typically do is we focus on the things that we can see. And that's a problem. Because visibility does not equal importance. Think about your home. If you come home from church today and there's a crack in your drywall, you can see that and you can fix it. But there might be a greater problem underneath the surface that you cannot see that is your foundation has issues. That's of greater importance. You might come home and find water dripping through the ceiling of your living room and it's making a puddle on the floor. And you can get a towel and wipe it up and put a bucket underneath it and you've, called, you've, 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 you've solved the problem of the wet floor, but what you cannot see is the busted pipe in the roof, in the attic that's causing that. That's of greater importance. And we often focus our energy, our effort, our anger, our frustration on what's visible, and our enemy is not visible. This is also true in our personal lives. We focus our efforts on issues that are visible when really the more important issues are the ones that we cannot see. We focus on the outward appearance when the issue is a heart issue. It's something that's deep within our soul that needs to be dealt with. We focus on the way that we look when we need to really be working on the way that we think. We constantly fall prey to this because we cannot see our enemy and we cannot see his tactics. But what God's Word does is God's Word takes the 
the concepts, the realities, the truths of this world and God's truth and makes them visible or plain to us. So as we do every Sunday, we're going to look to God's Word together. So let's look at Genesis chapter 3 and we're going to read verses 1 to 6. Where God is going to make visible to us our enemy. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. The settings that Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, a paradise that God has created for them. And Satan comes in the visible demonstration of a serpent or a snake. I hate snakes and I have scriptural reasons, okay? It's this. (laughs) The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he, the serpent, said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes will be opened, and you will be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now, we are just in the opening pages of the Bible. You're at the very beginning of your Bible, and we've already been introduced to Satan and his strategy. And what we see throughout Scripture is that Satan's strategy doesn't change. The culture changes, the tools at his disposal changes, the culture is different, but his strategy and his purpose remains the same. And so Satan's tools in Genesis chapter 3 in the very beginning are the same strategies that he uses now. And so it's important for us to go back and look at this so we can see the the way that the enemy fights against us. Because while we cannot see him, we we can pick up on his strategies and his tools that he's using against us. And what we see him do here first is he uses a combination of outright lies and half-truths. He starts with an outright lie and then lands on a half-truth. How many of you like to haggle about prices? None of you. Like the first service was a bunch of people who like it, and I'm glad that you were holier than that and that you don't like that. I don't like haggling about prices. I just I do not enjoy that at all. My grandmother loves that. My grandmother goes, yard sailing almost every Saturday in the spring, summer, and fall, not because she needs stuff, but because she wants to haggle about prices. And so she'll go and she'll find something that she doesn't need, and they're asking $5 for it, and she'll offer them a quarter. I mean, it's embarrassing to go with her because she has no shame. And if she gets them to come down on the price, she'll tell you later. She won't show off the thing that she bought. She's not even really worried about that. She wants to tell you the story of how she got them to come down from $5 to a dollar. And she got it for so cheap. Satan does the same thing. If Satan wants us to step off of zero where the truth is, he starts at a 10. And if he can get us to counter him, but we step closer and we end up on a 1 
or a two, that's a win for him. Because if he can just get us one or two degrees off course, that's all that he wants. And so like someone who posts something for sale on the internet and they want to get $1,000 for it, but they list it for $2,000, that way after they haggle with people they can get where they want to be, Satan starts off with the outright lie. And he says, is it true that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Now that would be crazy. If God had placed Adam and Eve in this garden and there are all these trees and they weren't allowed to eat anything. So that was ridiculous. But when Eve counters him, what she says is, we are allowed to eat of all of the trees in the garden, except the tree which is in the middle of the garden. We are not allowed to eat of it and we're not even allowed to touch it. And God hadn't said that. He hadn't said they weren't allowed to touch it. He told them not to eat it. And what Eve has done is she's just stepped very slightly off of the truth in the command that God has given her. And the reason that he's doing that is he's wanting to get an opening where he can begin to wiggle in and show her or lie to her about God. Now, why does... Why does Satan want her to eat of the tree? The reason that he wants her to eat of the tree is because it's what's available. He uses what's around. He fights us on the battlefield of this world, and he uses our own flesh against us. The temptation that he comes to you and me with is very different. I have never in my life been tempted by Satan to jump my neighbor's fence and eat the fruit off of his trees. All right? Maybe that's because I've never lived nice, next to a nice orchard. Maybe some of you that live next to people who have nice gardens, you're tempted to go and steal their tomatoes. I don't know. But that, that was what was present and available in that moment. Satan uses what's available around him to get our flesh to work against us. So what would he use now? He doesn't use a tree. He might use drugs or sex, or money, or power, or fame, or vanity. He uses the things that are very easily grasped today. And in a world that we live in right now, where all of those things are very easily grasped, all we have to do is reach out and grab them. All we have to do is type in a few words into Google. All we have to do is send a couple of text messages, and that thing that will turn our flesh is just out there. And Satan not only does this, he uses these substances and these things to enslave us. Now, Satan can't be everywhere at once. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, Satan just had to focus right here in this moment. But he is not omnipresent like God is. He's not able to be everywhere at once. So what does he do? He uses tools at his disposal to enslave people. And right now, all around us, there are masses of people that Satan doesn't have to be near them tempting them. He can focus his efforts elsewhere because they are enslaved to drugs. They're enslaved to alcohol. They're enslaved to their craving for money. They're enslaved to their craving for sex. And he has got them enslaved in that, and he can focus elsewhere. Now, we typically think of those things, those evil things, as ways that Satan enslaves us. 
But I want you to see another one that perhaps is less obvious. It's in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. Paul says to the Colossians, See that no one takes you captive by what? By drugs, sex, and rock and roll? No, by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. What Satan does is he uses the philosophies and traditions of men to trap people in thinking that will keep them far from God. Satan can't be everywhere, and he can't always be tempting everyone, so he uses the traditions of men, he uses the philosophies of this world, he uses the mindsets of people to keep them absolutely in objection to God. Recently, I was talking to someone who, they, uh, they'd invited a friend to church, and the friend said, I can't come, and they listed all of these reasons why they just don't like church. And the person who attends our church was like, but none of those things are true about my church. And they said to me, isn't it funny, isn't it crazy, the things that people think about church? Like, there are people that they're convinced that we're doing all kinds of crazy stuff in here. Why? Because Satan has convinced them that if they walk in here, somebody's going to judge them. Someone's going to tell them to leave because they're not wearing the right clothing. Someone's going to tell them that they're not welcome, that they're going to be asked to stand up in front of everybody and talk. They're, they're told these things, these, these ideas. Why? To keep them enslaved, to keep them from coming in contact with the gospel. There are people that have become convinced that there is all of this evidence to point to the fact that there is no God. There are people that have become convinced that churches are, are bigoted or racist. Why? Because Satan is using those ideas to keep them captive. And what Satan does is he uses what's available in the world and our own flesh and our own minds to lead us into destruction. That's what he does. I want you to see him do that to Eve right here, okay? Satan appeals to Eve's flesh and her mind, okay? The Bible tells us that, that Satan attacks us through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And we see all three of those things right here. What does Eve notice about the tree when she eats of it? She notices that the tree was good for food. Eve looked at the tree and she thought, man, I'm hungry. Boy, that sounds really good. And this is going to be really easy for me to illustrate to the 11 o'clock service more than it was to the 9.30 service because it's getting close to lunchtime. <laughs> and right now, some fried chicken would be good, right? Like, you're hungry, and you're like, come on, preacher, wrap this thing up. Grandma's got food on the table. Let's get home. It would be good for food. It is going to feel good in my belly. And Eve's looking at that. And even though she is surrounded by fruit trees that she can eat freely of that are amazing, she says, boy, I am so hungry and there's just nothing to eat. Even though she probably ate two hours before this, she's like, I just I haven't had anything to eat in so long. I am famished. I am starving. I need this. I'm craving that. I'm getting a little snacky. something that her flesh was craving. And what Satan does is he lays things out in front of us that our flesh craves, that our stomach desires, that our mind wants, that our sex drive is after. 
It's the craving of our flesh. We think, well, I, I was made for this, right? Our flesh wants it. It's just, it's natural. Eve saw that it was a tree that was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes. It looked good. Have you guys noticed this? I, I mean, you probably have. Have you noticed that the food that you get when you order at the fast food restaurant doesn't look anything like what's on a commercial? Have you noticed that? Like it's from a different planet, right? I mean, the food on the billboard, it looks amazing, right? It's like that burger looks so yummy. And then you go and you get the burger and you're like, I don't know that this is meat. I'm not sure this is even really food. <laughs> I don't think they got the ketchup on the burger. It's all in the wrapper. And it looks completely different. Why? Because if they, the commercial had what it really looked like, we wouldn't drive down there and get it. But the billboard looks juicy and yummy. It's pleasing to our eyes. And you know what Satan does? He shows us the appealing side of things. And when he wants us to do wrong, he doesn't show us the person slumped over in a gas station bathroom with a needle in their arm. He doesn't show us the person having a yelling, screaming match with their spouse because they stepped out on their wife or husband. He doesn't show that. He shows the appeal. He shows the sexy. He shows the pleasing to the eyes. Eve noticed that the tree was good for food, was pleasing to the eyes, and that it was a tree desired to make one wise. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. It was going to make her someone. It was going to make her better. And Satan uses this all the time. If you do this, you'll be better. You'll be more. You'll be accepted. You'll finally be living. That's what he does. And these tactics that he's using against Eve, they're possible because she has started to judge for herself if this is right or wrong. Satan has said to her, God knows that if you eat of this tree, you'll be like him. You're not going to die. There's the outright lie coming back in a new form. God's a liar. God's holding out on you. God doesn't care about you. God doesn't, God doesn't know what you're going through. God's forgotten about you. Everybody would be better off if you were gone. These are the outright lies. He tells us when he's gotten us into a place where we're making our own judgments and decisions and rationales for what is right and wrong. And what Eve should have done is she should have gone back to zero, back to truth, back to true north. This is what God has said. This is what I know is true. I don't know what you're talking about, but this is truth because this is what God has said. And when Satan can get us judging for ourselves, we are already in trouble. When he's got us in a place where we're rationalizing whether or not something is right or wrong, when we're making the decision based on our own thinking, we're in trouble. Because, can I, can I break something to you? And, and this is going to sound harsh. You are not smarter than God. Do you know that? I mean, like, one of the best days in my life was a day where I went, you know, I think I'm kind of dumb. I think I'm just kind of dumb. 
If I look back at my life, there's a lot of decisions I've made that the only explanation is I was kind of dumb in that moment. That was, the bad, that was a bad decision. And, and it would be a really good thing if you walked out of here. I hope this isn't the only thing you walk away with today, but it would be a good thing if you walked away with the realization that you're kind of dumb. Share that on Facebook. That, that's a great quote from the sermon today. <laughs> but we get into this place where we start thinking, I know what's good. I know what's right. I know what we should do. I know what those people should do. Right? Yeah, it's a whole lot easier for us to, to recognize the fact that we're constantly thinking about what everybody else should do. Right? What are we doing that we're judging them? We're putting ourselves in the place of God as judge. We've come to the place where we feel like we know better. What's, what's Eve doing with this tree? She's sizing it up. She's judging for herself whether or not this is a good thing or not. And she's already started to rationalize why she should do this, and she's, she's having confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is when you've already decided you want to do something, and you just go looking for reasons of why you should go ahead and do it. And that's what she's done. She's already decided she's going to do this, and she's looking for a rationalization of why she should go ahead and do it. And so much of what we share on Facebook is fake news, not because it's political, but because it's not true, but we feel better about it because it confirms what we already think. And it doesn't have any place in reality. It's pseudoscience. It's just some person out there wrote a blog about the way that they feel about these things, and we're like, that's how I feel, so that's got to be right. It's confirmation bias. What do we need to do? We need to come back to, what does God say? Because I know that's true. And he's smarter than me. Why is the devil doing this? Why is Satan doing this to Eve? He's doing it because she is made in God's image. The Bible tells us that God said, let us make man in our own image. And Satan can't fight the Lord. He is no match for him. So what he does is he settles for us because we are made in God's image and he can take us on. The idea there of being made in God's image, it's almost like a statue, a representation, an image of God. We are image bearers of God. There is something within us that God has put in us. It's our soul. We are made in God's image. And while Satan can't take on God, he will take on us because we are like the flag bearers. We are the standard bearers. We are bearing the image of God, and he's going to go against anything that is godly. The idea is like this statue that... You remember when, when our, our, our troops went into Iraq and we conquered Iraq and we took down Saddam Hussein and he had erected this huge statue of himself in Baghdad and they pulled that statue down and the people were beating the, the head of the statue with their shoes? They were doing that because they couldn't do that to Saddam Hussein. But they could do it to the statue. And the reason that Satan attacks us is that he can't take on the Lord, but he'll take on us. And that's the next best thing. And so he's coming after us because he is angry with God. He's trying to get us. And if that's the case, if that's what Satan's doing, we, we are joining his side when we turn on the image bearers of God. We're joining him in his fight. So Genesis 3 tells us all these things that Satan is saying, but then God shows up. And we don't hear from Satan anymore because when God shows up, Satan stops talking. 
And so God shows up, and Satan doesn't have anything else to say. And God asks Adam and Eve some questions. Like, Adam, why are you hiding? And Adam's like, oh, I kind of messed up. But it's not my fault, God. The woman you gave me, I mean, you made her God. She got me into this mess. And God asked Eve, and Eve was like, what's it me? It was the snake. God doesn't have a conversation with the snake, but he does tell him something. Look in your Bible at Genesis 3.15 if you still got it open. He says to the snake, I will put enmity between your offspring and the offspring of woman, and between the two, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So let me frame that differently for you, okay? Genesis 3.15 tells us that you will bruise his heel. And that is the first prophecy that Jesus is going to come as the offspring of woman, the son of man, is going to come and he's going to take on the work of the devil. He's going to conquer him and he's going to do it by taking the penalty or the punishment for our sins on the cross. And the cross, the same cross that Jesus references in the message last week when he says, if you want to be my follower, you must take up your cross and follow me. The same cross that the Romans used to murder, to torture, to execute their prisoners. That's the cross. And the cross of Jesus Christ is a bloody, gruesome cross. Jesus hangs on that cross after being whipped, after being beaten. His back is torn open. His face is so beaten that we can't even recognize him. Blood is streaming down his face because they put a crown of thorns on his head that pierces his skin and it's bleeding and running down. His hands and his feet are nailed to a cross. He, to catch his breath, he has to push up on his feet on the nail so that he can catch his breath. He finally gives up the ghost. He bleeds to death and a Roman soldier takes a spear and runs it up underneath his ribcage into the periocardial sac of his heart and water and blood come out together. And how does God refer to that gruesome scene on the cross? He says, you'll bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. And when Jesus dies that bloody, gruesome death on the cross. It bruises his heel like you might bruise your heel when you stomp on the head of a snake. And if the bruising of Jesus' heel is that gruesome, how total and gruesome and utter must the destruction of Satan's head be in that moment? Genesis 3, make it clear that you and I have made a mess of things, that the world is a mess because God gave us this beautiful place and we have used it as, 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 a, as, a, as an opportunity to satisfy the, the lusts, the desires of our own flesh. We have turned our back on God. We have chased after what Satan has offered to us and we have made a mess of things. But Jesus is coming to clean up the mess. And what the gospel writers tell us is that Jesus did that. When he died on the cross, he crushed the work of the serpent and he cleaned up the mess that we have made. When I was in high school, I played basketball. Don't be too impressed. I went to a very small high school. You get to be on the team when there's like hardly enough people to make a team. And so I played basketball, and at our school, basketball was a really big deal. 
And when we played our rivals on a Friday, the last period of school, everyone in the entire school would come into the gym for a pep rally. Do you remember pep rallies when you were in high school? Now, I don't know what your experience with pep rallies were because maybe you went to high school and you weren't really into sports and that was just kind of more of a sports thing. Maybe you weren't like into cheering or you didn't go to any of the games and you were just like drug along, like I have to go to this thing. But at our school, at our small school, it was a big deal. And when we were playing our rivals, we were like, we are going to beat them. We're not just going to beat them. We're going to run up the score on them. We are going to embarrass them. And our cheerleaders would be doing cheers, and they would have every class cheer who could be the loudest. And it was hype. Like, for, for a small Christian school, like, it was as wild and as crazy as it gets. And there'd be times like, yeah, final period of school. Like, yeah, we're going to beat them. We're going to run the score. We're going to embarrass them. And then that team would get there and we would play them and we would lose so big. Because we were getting hyped before the game had started. When we gather on Sunday mornings, this is a pep rally. But this is not a pep rally for a game that's being played later. It's for a game that has already been won because Jesus already won. He conquered the work of the snake. He conquered death, hell, and the grave. He has cleaned up the mess that we made. And we should get hyped. We should get pumped because this isn't a game that's coming later and we hope to win. This is a game that Jesus already won. He crushed the head of the snake and it was such a total victory that Jesus not only won, he has run up the score on Satan. And like we talked about last week, we have an enemy, but he is a loser. And we have a savior and he is has already won. And so this morning, if you have been taken captive, by the sin of this world, if you are captive to the desires of your flesh, if you are captive to money, sex, drugs, you're captive to philosophies that lead to destruction, you're captive to lies, know that Jesus came and died on the cross to conquer all of that. And he's already won. And the freedom can be ours because the victory has been won. And this morning... If you feel like you're constantly losing, know that that is in and of itself another lie of Satan. Because if you're in Jesus, we win. We win. Jesus already won. Let's stand for a word of prayer.